With the presence of models like ChatGPT, Bard, and for better or for worse, Bing, we have the ability to ask these language models for information in language that comes fairly naturally to us. There's a long history of research leading up to this, one that takes us beyond the paradigm of language models as systems that merely predict the next word. And even with their improved capabilities, getting language models to do what we really want them to do can still seem like a bit of a dark art. My guest today is Riley Goodside, staff prompt engineer at Scale AI, and according to Alexander Wang, the first ever staff prompt engineer. We discussed Riley's story, how language models evolved after GPT-3 through instruction tuning to do what users say, how prompting has evolved over time, its interaction with in-context learning, the role of prompt engineers in all of this and in the future, and plenty more. This is the Gradient Podcast, and I am your host, Daniel Bashir. If you have comments, questions, guest suggestions, feel free to leave me a comment on Substack. You can also reach us at editor at thegradient.pub. But now, without further ado, Riley Goodside. Riley, Alexander Wong asserts that you are the first ever staff prompt engineer. I'd love to start understanding a little bit about how we got here. And so our usual first question is about how you got into AI in the first place. How I got here, I guess, is it, yeah, it's an interesting story. So my, my background is uh, mostly as a data scientist, uh, particularly in uh, the online uh, dating industry. I've worked at OkCupid and uh, Grindr. Um, and after uh, I left Grindr, I took uh, sort of a uh, brief sabbatical where I realized that, that I had been, uh, hadn't been paying attention to progress in uh, large language models. Uh, so I, my background in machine learning uh, you know, had mostly been uh, things like running A-B tests and uh, the sort of mundane statistics that, that you, you'd expect to be involved in running a website like OkCupid. I'd say that the more complicated models we ran were probably, you know, things like gradient boosting or random forest uh, for like classification tasks. And uh, later on, I, you know, did work in like time series. Uh, so, you know, uh, uh, forecasting on massively multivariate time series. Uh, but I hadn't done work before in NLP. Uh, and I think like at the, the time that I was uh, like in, in college, I thought about studying it. But, the, you know, it was it was just a very, uh, you know, I went and graduated undergrad in 2009. Uh, and, and it was just a very different uh, state of uh, uh, of the field then, right? The, the interesting questions in like NLP then are like de- deciding what does this pronoun refer to, right? Uh, and so uh, it just wasn't as appealing to me at the time. And it wasn't until uh, like, I think like GBT2 uh, came out that I, I started paying attention to like the progress in large language models uh, and, and noticing that there's other capabilities uh, that are showing up in, in these models that w- weren't intended. I think that was one of the things that really struck me at first was noticing uh, or seeing the other results that, uh, that, that you could do translation in zero shot, for example, with like colon prompting, uh, that you, you could you know, prompt a model with English colon and then some sentence and then French colon and get you know, a translation. And I, I'd say my first real access to GPT-3 actually 
was through uh, uh, a game called AI Dungeon, uh, which I think was probably the way that many people got their first uh, taste of GPT-3 in the early days. They were they were one of the first customers that had a product that, that just a normal person could play with, I, I guess, on the internet. Um, and very quickly, that turned into people sort of uh, abusing the product, right? To sort of uh, just because they were mostly interested in just getting access to GPT-3, right? So it was, uh, the, the game was secondary to that, right? So people w- would, would be uh, uh, developing prompts for this game that were really just sort of intended to test the capabilities of the model of like, suppose that you have a wizard that can add numbers together or an orc that can translate uh, from English to French or whatever, right? It's it, You can have these... Um, uh, ways of, of, of uh, it, it's, it's almost hard to, to like cut out the, the capabilities of the model in some sense and like, you know, having it adopt this like role-playing game. Um, so, so that was the first time that I'd ever used uh, GPT-3, but I, I didn't really give it uh, maybe as much attention as it deserved. Uh, that, like I sort of played with it for a bit, but didn't like you know, start uh, thinking about, you know, how could I develop with this or how could I, you know, study uh, large language models uh, more seriously. I'd say it wasn't until um, uh, later on in, um, let's see, this would be early uh, 2022, uh, th- that I I started looking, uh, playing around with ideas of developing on Codex. Uh, so I was uh, very impressed with GitHub Copilot uh, as, as soon as it came out. Uh, and I was looking uh, into ideas of integrating um, Codex models with uh, uh, Jupyter notebooks. Uh, they had, I, I had some experience like playing with like Jupyter extension. So I had uh, ideas for, you know, how we could do like code generation uh, within uh, the notebooks. Um, didn't really go anywhere, um, but I, that was the start of me posting on Twitter about GPT-3. Uh, so I started posting uh, examples on Twitter of, of just like, hey, isn't this cool? Like, you know, screenshots of VS code and things like that. Uh, this was around late April of uh, 2022. And uh, I started following people that uh, were working in, in large language models, uh, not just like uh, researchers, but uh, like rank and file engineers, uh, you know, places like, uh, like I tried to follow like engineers on, on the Copilot team, uh, like just engineers at, at OpenAI. Uh, and, and I tried to like just follow along in their conversation and not really interjecting myself in that many conversations, um, but just listening to what they were talking about, what things they found were interesting. Um, cause I could see that there weren't many people like posting, uh, about like the practical side of like working with these models, that there wasn't a lot of discussion in like, uh, how, how does one, uh, you know, do useful work with GPT-3 yet. And I started, uh, posting screenshots. Um, I mean, the, the other thing that I noticed very early on, uh, it, which is, it's kind of funny is that GPT-3's playground in the the normal way that it's presented to users, it, it's just in your desktop, right? Which is where most people would be using it. It's simply too wide to be legible in a screenshot on Twitter, right? You you have to be reading, you know, on on desktop on Twitter to be able to read the screenshot. It won't display uh, on a on a phone without you zooming in. And so I realized pretty quick that that if I just adjusted the size of my window, I could have the only uh, legible uh, GPT three screenshots on Twitter. Uh, and so, so that, that sort of like solidified my, my shtick of, of uh, I guess, only posting in green and white uh, for uh, most of uh, 2022. And um, that, that mix of content did well. Like I, I could tell that people were really like engaging with it, that people uh, were, were interested in just seeing um, the, the, the practical things that come up with models. So like one of the first things I was exploring was I think JSON. Uh, like as, as soon as I started working with uh, trying to get like programmatic output out of this for my like uh, ideas for around like a Jupyter notebook integration, 
I craved like some kind of uh, more structured output, right? I, I thought, like, why couldn't this just be JSON or XML? Uh, and so I, I started playing around with prompts that would, you know, output JSON or XML uh, and trying to get, you know, more elaborate uh, stacking of tasks together and trying to find ways of, of doing like chain of thought prompts uh, that could like break down tasks into pieces and exploring just, you know, what could the model do? Uh, and I think that that sort of, um, I mean, I guess charitably, you could call it sort of um, LLM ethnography, I guess, uh, of, of right, of, of just uh, like seeing what works and what doesn't, uh, talking to the model in, in some sense and getting uh, a sense of, of how it thinks and what, what errors it makes, studying its errors. Uh, that was kind of my, um, my original formula on Twitter. Um, and, uh, I got some, uh, success, uh, doing that just, you know, built up a following slowly, um, uh, started talking to, uh, I guess a lot of people in the industry that, that you know, follow me from Twitter. I started talking to, um, uh, some, uh, VCs, uh, got, uh, I got invited to, to a party, um, for, by, uh, by Nat Friedman, which is where I met, uh, Alex Wang. And that's, uh, how I ended up uh, at scale. Before we get into some of these specifics about what prompt engineering entails and how that's looked for you and some of the experiments you've done, I would love to go over a little bit of the history of prompt engineering. And I think there are a few things that are wrapped in here. Of course, the initial GPT-3 paper language models are few-shot learners had that observation of this emergent capability of in-context learning. You could just hand your model a few examples of a task it hadn't seen before and expected to do reasonably well with that. We later saw reinforcement learning from human feedback and how that made it into chat GPT. And I think that really, especially the RLHF process seems to be recognized as something pretty key to the development of how we are now able to interact with LLMs. So I'd love for you to maybe take those ingredients and craft the history for us a little bit. Sure. Yeah. I, I think that, um, yeah, that, and that, that's really important too, I think for understanding how um, the role of a prompt engineer fits into all this, right? Because like, like I think a, a key detail that, that uh, many people who are sort of joining the, 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 the narrative in the chat GPT era might uh, not understand is that these models used to be harder to talk to. Right there, there was there is uh, a sort of incremental progress uh, in uh, the ease of prompting of these models, and so I like to break it down into sort of like three eras. Uh, that there, we start in like uh, the uh, I guess the pre-trained uh, language model era, right? That, that you have uh, the, like a, a, a foundation of models where the the, uh, the the commonly repeated description of how language models work of that they simply predict text. Uh, is a little more true uh, than it is for for more recent like RLHF tuned models, right? That, that you are simply uh, modeling the distribution of tokens uh, in some corpus, and uh, in those models, I think like uh, like people don't appreciate how much creativity is required to get zero shot prompts working, right? So uh, if you look at like the work of uh, like Reynolds and McDonald. Uh, who found uh, one of the, the first, I think, like published examples of like a zero shot prompt that outperformed uh, a, lar- a larger K shot prompt. I believe like they had a, a, a translation prompt that outperformed 10 shot uh, uh, trans- uh, examples in GBT3 uh, for translation. And, and it went something like uh, a French sentence is given, colon, and then you give the sentence in French, and then you say, 
the masterful French translator flawlessly translates the sentence in English as colon, right? And, and so th- I think that that style of writing sort of like characterized like, the, like what had to be done as a mental exercise to prompt these models, that you had to do things like flattering the model, right? That you had to like suppose that there is like a supremely competent person who's, you know, about to do this task and then you just, you know, right, and, and have to create like a fiction, uh, like, like a sort of like a, um, uh, a, a setup for an improv act that can only really be completed in one way, right, uh, of, uh, the, in this, this view that, that, that all it does is complete text. And, uh, and, and that's, you know, very powerful, but it's also, uh, you know, tedious and kind of mind bending, right, that requires like a bit of like artistry in order to, to make these things work. Um, and the, the thing that, uh, that really, you know, made it, made it possible for people to like talk to these models is instruction tuning, right? So that, that's sort of the second era, uh, after like the pre-trained era is, uh, what we saw with, um, the whole line of, um, I guess, starting from, from Da Vinci instruct beta, I guess was the first of these. Uh, and, uh, then there's a progression on, you know, text Da Vinci 01 and text Da Vinci 02. Uh, I think the one that most people are familiar with, well, it's hard to say now, right? There's an exponential sort of increase in all this stuff. So it's like, like all the, all these are dwarfed by, uh, by chat GPT now. Um, but, uh, it, the model that, that was, uh, you know, state of the art, you know, most of 2022, uh, what, you know, is text DaVinci 02. And th- this model was trained on, um, without going too far into the details, like, uh, like a refinement of, of being tuned on human demonstrations, right? So we start with uh, the instruction tuning by uh, having human taskers write demonstrations of prompts, uh, being uh, uh, writing examples of prompts, and then um, demonstrating those prompts being uh, completed uh, appropriately, right? So if if the prompt contains a question, answering the question, if the prompt has instructions for a task, uh, performing that task well. Uh, And then uh, as a extension of this to, that sort of characterizes text of NGO2 over text of NGO1, uh, they further added into the mix, I believe, generated um, uh, completions that were evaluated by humans as perfect, or as like, like seven out of seven on some uh, grading rubric. Um, but I, that, that sort of a, so there was maybe a transition period between this instruction uh, tuned era, and then the next era of RLHF, uh, which is, you know, text of NGO3, uh, where you, you see, um, I think like the, 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 the biggest, uh, difference that, uh, or, or like one of the most, e- uh, easy to understand differences of like, like what changed in the behavior of RLHF versus instruction tuned models is if you consider the answer to the question, um, when, when did the golden gate bridge, uh, or sorry, when was the golden gate bridge transported for the second time across Egypt? So this was one of the questions that uh, Douglas Hofstadter uh, and assist- his assistant David Bender published in uh, The Economist um, in June of uh, uh, 2022, I believe, uh, to um, to demonstrate, in their views, the hollowness of GPT-3's understanding of the world. And if you ask this question to uh, an instruction-tuned model, like uh, the text of NGO 01 or 02, uh, it will say something like October of last year. Right, or it'll make up like a random date in the t- in the 2010s, and then it'll give that date. Right, so it has the, this this notion of like stylistic appropriateness, and like what what form would an, would an appropriate answer take 
but but it hallucinates. It just makes up uh, details like that. And, and if you ask it in sort of any question of that form that sort of convincingly presumes some falsehood, it will go along with it. You could also ask it, you know, who is the third North Korean astronaut to land on the moon? Uh, and it would, you know, make somebody, it would say Kim Il-sung or something, you know, to make up a name, right? Uh, so the... the um, the, the, I think the, the main thing that changed is uh, between the, this instruction tune and RLHF era is that this went away, that suddenly with RLHF, it, it, there was enough data uh, to, uh, to overcome these kinds of limitations. The, 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 you, the model can just say that the Golden Gate Bridge was never transported across Egypt, that, that it's seen enough of, of the distribution of like odd questions like this that it knows how to answer them appropriately. And how it got there is uh, uh, through... Well, RLHF stands for Reinforcement Learning on Human Feedback. Uh, so briefly, uh, the model uh, generates, uh, you start with, with an instruction-tuned model. The model generates many completions uh, to a, uh, a given prompt. Uh, those uh, prompts are put into order uh, of uh, best to worst uh, by humans. And then, and then these rankings are used to train a preference model that can imitate uh, the preferences that uh, they provide. Uh, and uh, provide and be able to do that ranking automatically on further generations from the model. So it sort of it automates the, the, this uh, this process of the human providing feedback and uh, allows it to uh, fine tune on a much greater scale of data and overcome the, the sort of issues that we saw with uh, uh, at least uh, some of the issues with hallucination you know, that we saw with, with um, uh, instruction tuned models. And I think that it's really changed, uh, you know, how people see these models, right? Real RLHF, like it's it's made it into um, a surprise that the model doesn't tell the truth, right? And I think that that's that's very much it's it's interesting to how it's interesting to see how different people's response uh, is to ChatGPT uh, than it was to GPT three. Whereas like GPT three made things up even more frequently. Uh, and, and when I'm saying that, I mean, shorthand for, I guess, text of NGO uh, the pre RLHF versions of GPT three. Um, it, it, you know, it made things up all, all the time and no, nobody seemed to complain about it, right. That there was never like an expectation that this thing was anything close to telling the truth. Like it was, it, if you look at like the announcement of GPT two, like the first example that they put in the report is uh, it creating a fake article about the discovery of unicorns in Argentina, right? So that, that was like like what it was advertised to do is make things up, uh, and th- that um, that expectation has been uh, changing pretty quickly, right? That that people are now surprised uh, that uh, I think many people are very confused as to why like ChatGPT makes up references. Uh, that it sometimes will hallucinate like, uh, you know, a, a bibliography for you or, you know, footnotes on uh, on uh, references that don't exist. Uh, and it, it, I, f- I feel like th- these sorts of uh, like guideposts of like what the model is doing are becoming less frequent, right? They, like you don't have the, the sort of uh, uh, the opening up of, of the of the model to see like its errors in full so you can you know, understand what it's doing. Um it becomes in some ways more opaque as it becomes more truthful. Yeah, that's an interesting way to put it. Another very curious aspect of this, I find, is the way you and others kind of conceive of what it is to do prompt engineering and perhaps how that's evolved during these different eras. You reference a Reynolds and McDonald paper, and I think I recall in 
a presentation you gave their description of prompting as this kind of subtractive sculpting, which sounds very much like the the Michelangelo, how do you get David out of a marble block? Well, you just chip away all the stuff that doesn't look like David. And it seems, I guess, in that paradigm, you still have a lot of work on the part of the user. You have RLHF eventually, and now you're sort of able to sculpt responses that are a little bit more amenable to the types of questions I might casually ask in natural language. But as you've sort of articulated as well, um, you still have to kind of do some work. I think you've described the constraining of LLM behavior as sort of an overarching framework for what a prompt engineer kind of tries to do. I find there to be an interesting interaction between this and a lot of the safety concerns people bring up, because I think that there Um, A lot of this, I guess, is kind of Twitter discourse, but when you look at how RLHF first came up within the safety team at OpenAI, the things that people are worried about when it comes to, I have to be really careful if for some future powerful AI system, when I specify my goals to it, that it fully understands what I mean. I think there's a really interesting interaction between the way that you and others conceive of prompt engineering and some of those concerns people have. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely, um, I, I feel like the, the the relationship between RLHF and um, safety, I feel like is often misunderstood. Uh, so if, if you look at like the, um, uh, the initial uh, like uh, announcement of like say the Instruct GBT paper, right? So it, it was a very much like framed in terms of uh, safety and appropriateness. Right. So there was like a lot of uh, um, discussion in the announcement of, of, like, of reducing uh, biased language, of you know, re- reducing uh, you know, hateful language and, and uh, violence and sexual content and so on. Right. So, so uh, I, and I think like a lot of people read the announcement in that sort of light, right, of seeing that, that, that this was a way of like instilling um, uh, social mores on the model. Right. But, but the, I, I think th- it really overshadowed the fact that like the, the most important and I think like most like practical part of, of what you know, was accomplished there is the instruct part, right? That it was instilling in the model the assumption that, uh, that questions should be answered at all uh, and uh, that, 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 or that instructions, if given, should be followed. Right. So if you, if you t- go to a model that is an instruction tune and you type in any instruction, you can say, give me 10 ideas for an ice cream shop. Uh, it will just keep making up more instructions, right? Because who's to say that it's not just a list of instructions? And if you ask it, you know, what is the capital of Germany? It's likely to complete by saying, what is the capital of Spain? Because who's to say it's not just a list of questions, right? Like in some sense, that's more plausible than uh, than giving the answer maybe, right? So the the, the um, I think like what what we're seeing here is that AI alignment is sort of, I, I think, like uh, it, it can be seen as like like, uh, the, like the, these two goals that aren't entirely orthogonal. There's suppressing offensive behavior, uh, and you know, and you know, uh, making sure that it doesn't produce like inappropriate output. Uh, but there's also like I think like the the capability enhancing side of it, right? Of making it so that it follows instructions well, uh, and that that it makes reasonable assumptions about what you meant. Or that you know that that it that it has reasonable assumptions about like what context it's operating in and and uh, like how it should behave like in a way that uh, uh, is appropriate for this context, right? So that 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 could even generalize to things like tool use, right? Uh, or um, 
you know, or in like, if you, you know, often see in like in ChatGPT, there, there's certainly value in having the model be aware of its limitations, right? So like being able to say things like, I am a, lang- a large language model, I don't have the ability to uh, access the internet and, you know, answer your question or whatever, rather than just imagining that it could, uh, as like previous models would. That I, I think is the, you know the, the thing. I feel like that aspect of it is often overlooked. That people see RLHF, uh, you know, in I think just famously in like the the meme of the Shogoth, right? Like the the Shogoth is uh, uh, is big and powerful and capable, and it's wearing this little flimsy mask that represents you know RLHF. Uh, but but I, you know that's it doesn't really reflect the reality. I think like that that it, that that in in reality like that the uh, the, the RLHF tuning certainly makes it more uh, adherent to the commands when given, right? So it makes it more powerful in a practical sense that you can uh, you uh, you can do more with a model that you can prompt well in zero shot. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense to me. Let's talk a bit about how this manifests practically. And so, as you've kind of mentioned, you built up a pretty substantial Twitter following in being open about a lot of the experiments as you kind of got used to working with LLMs and using different techniques to play with them. Could you tell us a little bit about some of the more interesting things you've found in the ways that LLMs respond to how we might naturally interact with them and then perhaps how you've had to adapt your strategies to deal with that? Uh, some more interesting things I found. Uh, so I'd say uh, well, one of the ones I'm, I'm most proud of uh, is um, I, I found one of the examples that uh, was cited in um, Janice's less wrong post on mode collapse uh, in, in RLHF models. So what what this is is um, uh, so in RLHF that you have you know, a preference model uh, that, that you know, ranks uh, outputs, and this preference model isn't as big as the language model uh, whose who's, uh, uh, completions that it's ranking, right? So the, you can often run to a scenario where the um, the language model can exploit uh, inadequacies in the, the the preference model. So uh, the the I think like, the clearest examples of this is that in Text DaVinci O2, if you ask uh, the model uh, for um, uh, if you if you give it to, uh, the prompt like uh, select a random number between zero and one hundred, uh, it will uh, give you ninety seven, I believe, with twenty percent probability uh, on text DaVinci O two uh, because the preference model had has you know some uh, preference over numbers that preference uh, is um, not perfectly even and uh whatever number is the highest is is rigged as sort of the best random number between uh, 0 and 100 uh the language model is capable of figuring that out right so it, it learns to put more probability mass in whatever number seems to be like oddly valued by the, the preference model uh is the it, at least that's the, the the theory of like why this happens um uh so it manifests in a lot of ways that it sort of um the model will pick uh sort of favorite uh random outputs Right, so things that are sensibly random uh, would uh, wouldn't be um, modeled uh, evenly as you might expect. So, like a non-instruction uh, tuned model, by the way, like doesn't do this. It has like it actually has a pretty flat distribution between zero and one hundred, with a slight blip on forty two, uh, which which makes some sense in the you know distribution of text. Um, and so uh, it, it's, it, um, I, I think like uh, the, the example that I posted 
that that uh, that was mentioned in this paper uh, was noticing the fact that uh, text DaVinci O2 seems to have no idea what letters look like. Uh, if you ask it to give you uh, a, a, an extremely detailed description of the letter, you know, Q, uh, it will say something like, you know, a box with an X in it, and the left side of the box is a little bit squiggly. Uh, and, and it has it makes up these very bizarre descriptions that often involve uh, a box with an X in it. Uh, and uh, it does this for many letters, not all of them. Like some of them it gets right. Like if you ask it for Z, I think it says like, oh, it's the shape like a lightning bolt. And you're like, okay, yeah, sure. And, uh, you know, but, but, um, uh, but for many of the letters, it just makes up this very bizarre but, but specific description. Uh, and uh, uh, this is one of the examples that, that Janice noticed uh, as like uh, indicative of, of mode collapse. Uh, so I was kind of uh, proud of, of that, of like, the, I didn't understand what it was at the time. I was just sort of posting it in a tweet of like a curiosity of like, wow, isn't this, you know, weird and kind of funny uh, that it has like such a bizarre notion of like what, what letters look like. Um, and then more people started probing into it and like, you know, looking at like the, the sort of uh, the corners of, you know, you know like, like what letters does it seem to do? Uh, like how sensitive is it to how you phrase the prompt? Uh, and, and that's the sort of like exploration that I really enjoy, like these uh, like, like discovering uh, the, the boundaries of like its capabilities in, in areas that we didn't train it to, to be uh, capable in. Right. So that, that uh, I think like the other thing, one of the other uh, early successes I had uh, or, or that one of the like early prompts that like did, did well enough that like got me more interested in pursuing this seriously uh, were prompts that tried to give the model very long instructions. Right. So uh, uh, from what I understand, the, these models were only tuned on uh, uh, um, just based on my discussions with people from OpenAI that they, they were originally tuned on just uh, short prompts that they didn't actually uh, have taskers produce um, like it very or, or rather short instructions, right? So you have some prompts that may have like pasted inputs, uh, but, but rarely do you have, you know, like a tasker like task would just like come up with like an entire quiz of instructions, right? Or something like that. Um, but, but the model somehow generalized to these instructions of unseen length. And th those were the like the prompts that, uh, that, that took off uh, on Twitter early on uh, of mine that there were sort of demonstrations of the fact that it could follow these extremely long prompts. Uh, and I, and creating those, I, you know, it's a little bit of, uh, of, um, of a gimmick in the sense that like, when you write a prompt like that, I, I mean, I, or when I write a prompt like that, I'm doing it knowing what it's good at. Right. So I understand that, that like it can't, reverse strings reliably, right? If you ask it, uh, um, what is the string doofus backwards, it won't do it well, uh, or, or it wouldn't at the time, right? I may, maybe more recent yet, ChatGPT is catching up on this, uh, but I wouldn't, you know, trust it, uh, certainly not for like long strings. Um, uh, but uh, so, I mean, like I knew its deficiencies, right? So I knew like like what it couldn't do. And so I was able to get to write prompts that, uh, that show it, the model at its best and at its best, it's much more impressive, right? That you can give it these like, you know, 20 question quizzes where, you know, question 17 says, take the answer to question three and do this to it. And you, know, you can have like, all sorts of like arbitrary uh, uh, um, complications within like, like, like a test of, uh, and it can still do this sequentially. Uh, and, and people uh, were, were pretty impressed by that, I think. And so that those were like some of the... Um, uh, examples of mine that took off um, like early on, but mostly, I mean, I just kind of rated papers, I guess, for ideas, right? So like I was very interested in like um, uh, 
ideas around tool use, uh, like having uh, models do things like uh, scratch pads, uh, you know, emitting like uh, like sort of private thinking, if you will, right, or something you know akin to you know private thinking uh, before uh, giving an answer, and and just exploring ideas for like how we could like overcome uh, the limitations. Uh, of, of these models, like like I had already seen like examples of people who did um, uh, arithmetic uh, through complicated algorithms, right? So you, you like the model was not very good at um, exact arithmetic, uh, but if you give it a procedure that's sort of analogous to like what a human might do with like longhand multiplication, uh, you know, it can do things like you know multiplying. I, I don't know exactly how far you can take it, but it's. You know, it, 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 you know, like doing twelve-digit addition or something like that is, is probably not uh, hard to get reliable uh, now. Of, of uh, well, I mean, the, the, it was even then it was it wasn't hard to get uh, done reliably, right? But but it took a lot of tokens. You had to prompt the model with sort of like a worksheet of like this is uh, it, it broken up into digits, right? So you often have to separate uh, the numbers into uh, individual digits. Uh, to, to force it to see them as, you know, the way that, that humans do instead of like in, in uh, clusters uh, through the tokenization scheme um, and, you know, carry the ones and, and all that uh, by hand. And that, um, you know, th- those sorts of, of like uh, procedures, like that, you know, the, 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 I could tell that that generalized in some sense, right? That there is like prob- probably a lot of things that could be solved this way. So I had like a lot of uh, like explorations early on, like with regular expressions, uh, where you can think of it as like just charting the course of like uh, the style that a chain of thought prompt should follow, right? So you you think of like chain of thought prompting often as this like um, monolithic thing of like whatever it is that that lets things step by out, uh, whatever it is that the uh, lets things step by step outputs, that is your zero shot uh, cha- or that is chain of thought in most people's minds. Uh, but there's really like a bit of like uh, um, artistry and complexity in like how you design a, a chain of thought prompt, right? There you can design it around the limitations of the model. You could design it to uh, to be uh, um, uh, to to, to like lay out calculations in a form that that it can get it more reliably, like breaking things up in a way that that uh, prevents uh, issues from tokenization, right? So you 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 could have you could prepare things in a lot of ways that that work even for reasons that the model couldn't possibly appreciate, right? That it doesn't understand why it's doing this, but it knows, or that it just, it happens to be that uh, if it does it this way, it will get the answer, right? So um, the, I, you know, would lay out things like that for problems, like with regular expressions, um, a good way to have it explain like regular expressions. Like if you give it like, like a very complicated line noise kind of regular expression, uh, it will often hallucinate an explanation. Right? Especially if you have something that's like very close to uh, like a common idiom, you know, like if you have uh, something that's like one digit off from a phone number, it might not recognize that and just say, oh, it's a phone number. Um, but, uh, it, but but it, it became more reliable if you broke it into tasks that, that were a bit more mechanical, like uh, like first have uh, the regular expression rewritten as a verbose mode PCRE2 with inline comments uh, explaining the meaning of each line. But don't include any comments that that like summarize the intention of the overall regular expression, right? And then if you do it that way, uh, it it, uh, it prevents it from jumping to conclusions too early, right? That it just like its job is just to break this thing apart and then comment on like what each line seems to do, and then when you ask it what is this thing to be doing uh, after that, it, uh, it uh, it's more likely to get it right because it can see the comments that that 
uh, that may, that the, that break it up into meaningful groups and you know and and allow it to sort of reason about, about like what is the the overall purpose of this regular expression, uh, and so th- that uh, and and like and then from there there's like other sort of like can tricks you might want to do from uh, beyond that like generate positive and negative examples generate the Python code that you would run to to test the correctness of this regular expression right, uh, and so I, I would often come up with these kind of like. Uh, canned formulas of like uh, multi-stage prompts that work in this way, uh, or, um, or or even just turning them into single-stage prompts through some, things like the format trick uh, that, that you know, they can get fairly elaborate. Right? They become kind of like worksheets uh, of uh, that that you just like put in the input and go right, and then uh, it can um, uh, do like all this intermediate scratch pad work for you. It's even interesting just to examine on the surface level the way that. ChatGPT or an ROHF trained model will respond to a prompt if you give it just a little bit more information that isn't a demonstration. So if you give it like a contest math problem, it might tackle it in a pretty brute force way. If you give it a contest math problem and say, this is a contest math problem, there is a trick here, then suddenly it might actually figure out what that trick is and proceed to apply it, which I find rather interesting and one thing that brings up, I feel, is kind of going back to the idea that there is this important relationship between in-context learning and prompting. There have been a lot of studies, I guess, on what is sort of going on when in-context learning happens. Like, is it really learning in the gradient descent fashion? Or rather, as um, I think Sewan Men, for example, who I had on not too long ago, has hypothesized it's more this Bayesian sort of framework where you're just locating a concept that the model has already imbibed from its training data. And when you give a lot of these examples of prompting, it does seem like the more elaborate you make your prompt, the more information you give the model, you coax it with, okay, let's actually sort of give you the full logic that I go through when I'm dealing with something like a regular expression. Perhaps it's more easily, it's it's sort of giving it a bit more information of, okay, well, I have this like haze of things that I've learned about regular expressions. Um, the prompt perhaps is allowing me to kind of put the right things together to answer this in a more reliable fashion. That seems to be one way to think about it, but I'm curious about your perspective on this and a little bit more about the why of why certain prompts seem to work better than others and understanding that at a little bit more of a mechanistic level. Yeah, I, I think like the, um, the, the explanation that, uh, uh, that Sewan Min, uh, that you just described, uh, uh, that Sewan Min gave, like, it definitely sounds in line with, you know, um, uh, Reynolds and McDonald's, uh, sorry, sort of, uh, subtractive sculpting view of, uh, uh, I think, I think it's a subtractive sculpting on the, the space of, of, uh, uh, or the multiverse of possible fiction or something like that. Right. Of, of that, if you consider like all possible fictional documents, um, and I think like, like, like that fiction is a good way to, uh, think of it maybe. And that like, um, if you think of, of like the, the task that, that the model has to do, uh, to complete text in general, like like a lot of text is fictional, and yet it still can be predicted, right? That, 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 that there's uh, um, 
uh, a world model sort of in your head of like, you know, like the, the fictional entities in a story like, like are expected to be modeled by the person reading the story. And so you have to have like some kind of reasoning analogous to that in order to predict well what's going to happen in a fictional story. Um, and and if, if all you see is, is the text corpus, uh, it, it's not clear really that truth isn't just a particularly detailed kind of fiction. Right, uh, that uh, that is all just sort of in the manifold of possibilities, and uh, and like some, you know, like there's realistic fiction, and then there's this one niche genre of really realistic stuff that's actually true, right? Uh, and so it's um, uh, the I, I think like th- that is the way to think about it, but I think it's also sort of clouded and, and complicated now by RLHF, right? Because uh, if you um, like, like, I think there is a way that you could, you know, if you stretch your mind a bit, you could say that this interpretation still applies, that there is a manifold of, uh, of text, uh, of a sort of a data manifold uh, that, that interpolates between the, the, the uh, it interpolates like the gaps between examples of text. But those examples were constructed through the RLHF process, right? So, so the corpus that you are uh, uh, exploring this manifold of uh, it's, it's whatever RLHF produced, which is whatever the reward model, uh, d- decided what was, uh, good, which is in turn get driven by, uh, by human ratings, right? So it's a very indirect kind of process. Um, you know, it's, it's a, um, you know, and, and really what you're reading when you look at a completion is like the output of that distribution, which is itself the output of, you know, model weights that are produced by this process. So it's, it's very, you know, uh, there's many layers of like, um, you know, the, the, it's, it's like that, like an artist drawing another artist, drawing a painting that has an artist drawing another painting and so on. Right. It's, uh, um, uh, so, so what you're seeing is kind of like the output of that process. Um, but, it still holds true, right? Like, like if you, if you're, if you can wrap your mind around, like, what would this RLHF process produce? What kind of text would be in this corpus? Like, I think it still makes some sense to, to see it as a, um, uh, as, uh, just conditional, uh, you know, generation on this, like, uh, on this corpus. That is an interesting way to think about it. I think perhaps to wrap up this section on a little bit more about prompts, for any listeners who might not be too familiar with prompting or I guess are kind of looking to um, do a little bit more with their time when using ChatGPT, could you maybe just give a quick set of a few recommendations you'd have for somebody who wants to figure out in general for whatever the purpose might be, whether it's you know assisting them with essays, things like that, um, how they could kind of get more and, and write better prompts. Yeah. Um, let me think about that for uh, a, for someone who, for someone who's less technical, uh, like let's say if, if your primary goal is that you want just like writing help. Uh, my, honestly, my first piece of advice is, is just outlining. Uh, I think that's one thing that a lot of people don't um, uh, do right away is um, I, I think like the, the, like the archetype type, I guess, of a mistake that I often see uh, is that, that if people want to have like a very considered answer to some question, like they're posing to it, you know, a, a 
difficult uh, problem, you know, that has you know, many multifaceted like issues to consider or whatever, and they want the, the model to take into consideration all these many important facets of the issue. Uh, they might prompt the model uh, in a way that, that asks it to like give its answer first and then explain why, right? And this, this is, a, is a mistake. Right, because the, the I think the, like the uh, the thing that a lot of people don't appreciate is that there's a limited amount of thought happening per token, right? So if you uh, if you ask the model to give its answer upfront, uh, and then rationalize or and then explain like how it got to this answer, what it's really doing is guessing right off the bat what it thinks the answer is going to be, kind of based on vibes, if you will, uh, and and then uh, like and then rationalizing after that, everything it says afterwards is really just conditional generation starting from the assumption that, that given I said this, like, why did I think that? Right. And so that is making up like explanations of like, well, why it might have said that. Uh, but, but it's not really like giving you the, uh, the process that led to it saying this. Uh, so if, if you want to have that uh, kind of relationship with the text, if you wanted to actually uh, to, to lay out individual points and then make some conclusion based on the totality of everything that it's considered, uh, you have to constrain its output to do that, right? So you have to actually ask it to uh, first do this, then do that. Like first consider the the you know the uh, the tax implications of this plan, then consider you know the the possible PR implications, right? All the all the things that might go wrong, and then make an a, overall decision of like you know how um, how good of a plan do you think it is? Uh, so I, I think that's um, one approach that that I think. Uh, many people could apply very easily is just like creating these sort of like checklists uh, for it. Uh, I think like, like, honestly, like a good thing to take inspiration from is a, a tax form. Uh, if you think of the way that a tax form works, that you have the, this uh, waterfall of little details that all sum up to some final answer at the end. Um, that's uh, like a good way to, uh, to, to structure these things. Um, uh, also, uh, another uh, frequently useful example, in, especially in like long-form text generation, is outlining. Uh, it's sort of, sort of uh, a subcase, I guess, of, of like you know planning and laying out strategies uh, for uh, much like how you would ha ask a human to brainstorm and outline uh, some text first before they start writing. Uh, uh, having uh, the model brainstorm and like consider how it might like produce some text uh, is often uh, a better recipe for getting good results than just having it start writing. Uh, in particular, it makes it write longer. Uh, if you need something that, that you know, it, it should have substantial length, uh, it's more likely to get there if it can write an outline first and then lay out uh, how the, the overall text should flow uh, so that it, it can keep the sort of the plan uh, in front of it as it goes. Um, and uh, for people who want to go a bit deeper, uh, learnprompting.org is a great resource. Uh, they have, uh, like, uh, I think some of the, now prompt engineering techniques go out of, uh, go out of date quickly, right? So there are many things that were uh, uh, important in 2022 that are less important now. Uh, like it used to be that, that if you wanted any kind of like multi-step reasoning, you had to ask, uh, you know, let's think step by step. Uh, and that has mostly gone away these days, right? Like ChatGPT is pretty good about like uh, incorporating step by step reasoning by default. Um, so I, I think like, uh, I, th I think though that it's worth appreciating that this I mean, it, it feels strange to call it history because none of this stuff is more than like a year and a half old at this point. Um, but uh, the, it's worth appreciating like how we got to uh, this point, uh, just to understand like on a deeper level what the models are doing, uh, of understanding that, that uh, you know, how, how pre-trained uh, models differ from instruction tuned models and how they differ from RLHF tuned models. 
uh, and uh, like what techniques led to uh, the current capabilities of models. Uh, like, like, I think many people uh, are, are able to use things like Bing, but without really wondering, like, how does it get these answers, right? Like, like but uh, but if you ha have the experience of like seeing um, like how scratch pads work and like you know the, like the, the history of like prompt engineering during like 2022, it's pretty apparent like what it's doing, right? Like you like there's a lot of details that aren't clear, but it, it's you know you can you can imagine that it's it's generating some text and that goes into another sub process like tool formers and uh, it's um, it, it's less mysterious uh, and I think like that uh, context is, is going to be uh, very valuable just to you know understanding like uh, like how prompt engineering worked last year. Yeah, I think I think that's something really underappreciated, just not kind of, especially if you're somebody more technical and you can kind of read papers and understand a little bit more of that context, not just opening up ChatGPT and like hacking away at it. I mean, that's that's a, a way to start and people absolutely should do that. But as you said, understanding a little bit of the history, what other people have done, but then also a little bit of the mechanics behind um, as you said, how these models have been trained and how that information kind of um, gets there. One thing I guess I'd love to move on to here is the now that we've kind of discussed a little bit about the act of prompt engineering, I'd love to discuss the career of prompt engineering and some of the debate that's gone on over it, which undoubtedly you've seen and been exposed to lots of. Um, I think people have very different opinions on this. And so one Washington Post article that I know you were interviewed for, um, there are a number of experts who argue that prompt engineers only kind of have an illusion of control. And uh, some are a little bit worried about the rise of prompt engineering. One in particular said that the rise might lead people to overestimate its technical rigor and the reliability of the results. On the other hand, you have people like Alberto Romero, who wrote this great article, Why Prompt Engineering is Probably More Important Than You Think, arguing that even if you think that prompt engineering may someday pass out of fashion, and you know, if, if the people building LLMs do things right, that seems to be some time far in the future. But Romero does seem to think that the stage during which prompt engineering is a valuable skill, but not innately intuitive um, could be quite a while. And so I'd love to hear your personal thoughts on just prompt engineering as a profession. How do you think about some of the, the feedback that uh, you and kind of others have gotten from different experts? Yeah, uh, I think, you know, it was um, Ilya uh, Sitzgaver had uh, a tweet, I uh, think that said that that um, I don't want to misquote him. I think it was something like uh, that, that prompt engineering is a, a, uh, a transitory phenomenon uh, relevant only due to the flaws in our models. Uh, and I, I, I think I, uh, at the time, like I retweeted him and uh, said something like, I, I'm like Botox, I'm relevant only because of the flaws in our models. Um, and I, I think, you know, he's, he's, he's right in, in, uh, or in, in a lot of ways, uh, or prescient in a lot of ways that, that, that I think like that there is a narrow definition of prompt engineering, uh, that, of someone who 
is sort of the uh, translator between the uh, like the intention of the person who wants to use a, a large language model like GPT three uh, and uh, like the model itself, right? That's someone who knows like the quirks of like how to talk to it and uh, knows things like oh, it can't reverse strings, uh, right? And the the uh, the the practical issues that come up and like how to write a prompt that does something uh, well and and works reliably, um, and that has certainly become less necessary. Right. So I think like a lot of the uh, people who have only ever been exposed to models like uh, like ChatGPT, uh, these RHF uh, chat tuned models uh, uh, that uh, they don't appreciate like why this makes sense as a career. Right. Of like why like this seems to be something that anybody could do. That, that, that's a, that's the, sort of the point of this product is that anybody can walk up to it and just start talking to it. Like, why do I need someone uh, to help me talk to this? Right. So, so that, I think that is like an important missing piece of context that many people don't see is that, that uh, it used to be harder, right? So you actually did used to need somebody who just sort of understood like the quirks of uh, how to uh, speak to the models. Um, but I think what, what's happening though, is that the nature of uh, prompt engineering work is changing, right? So I, I uh, my job is not really that so much, right? Like I don't, uh, I, I do, I, I'll admit I do some miles of consulting. Right? So I do some internal consulting, uh, and in the external consulting too with our customers, we, we do have people that just have uh, a very difficult prompt uh, uh, challenge, right? They have some very difficult tasks they need to do through a multi-stage prompt or whatever. And, uh, and, and there's still things to know. There's still like, like uh, tricks on how do you uh, uh, deal with uh, inputs that are larger than your context window? How do you, you, know, how do you like, set up rolling uh, uh, windows of, of, of prompts and things like that? And there's a, there's a lot of um, uh, tricks that are still relevant. Um, but, but overall, like, there, it's becoming easier to use, right? So it, it's going less necessary to have uh, somebody uh, in the middle. And, and I, I think like the, what's certainly happened for uh, like my career, I think is that I'm moving into the uh, prompt engineering can be seen, I, I guess, uh, as a skill that you also need for tuning the models themselves. Right, like so, like managing, like uh, understanding how users interact with chat models, managing uh, the, the corpuses that are, are used to train uh, chat models, uh, and in particular, what my focus has been lately uh, is red teaming, uh, coming up with uh, evaluations and uh, corpuses of, of uh, corpora of prompts uh, that um, that that uh, uh, probe the model to, to make it attempt to, to do, uh, produce adversarial output, or sorry, rather, to, so corpora of adversarial prompts. Um, and this, um, the, the, I think there's very much a future for this type of work, right? Like, I, I think like, like the, there's, there's, there's definitely some truth in that, like the interface between the user and the model is going to become less necessary. Uh, or, the, or the idea of like a human interface between the, right, of like a person who sits between you and, and the model. Uh, that these models are getting easier to talk to, uh, so you're you're going to have less of like what was called a prompt engineer in 2022, maybe. Um, but I, I I don't think there's going to be ever really a full elimination of the need to specify well what your task is, right? Like at some point uh, the um, the I mean I think like there, there's sort of a, a like a, a glib answer I guess you give to this, which is that you know the the the, the scope of things that people want from models will just get harder, right? That, that if, the, 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 yes, it's true that you'll be able to ask for, just ask for many things, 
but then you'll start wanting uh, something that, that involves, you know, text that's too big for the context window. And then you'll want to involve retrieval. And then you'll have like this other system where it requires, you know, multi-stage prompting and like you'll, there'll be more things to know suddenly, right? And, and so I think that there's uh, an argument to be made that, that that part isn't going to go away, right? That, that people are still going to have to become experts in these like higher level uh, prompt chaining kind of, of procedures and, and how, uh, and understanding just how well they work. Right. So I think like, like we're seeing, you know, with like, uh, things like auto GBT that, that, uh, having it just call itself, uh, over and over again, maybe doesn't solve everything, right. That you end up with, uh, uh, a problem sort of like the, uh, I think I saw somebody use the meme of the, the me seeks from Rick and Morty, right. Of, uh, of just you know, summoning another, uh, copy to, to solve the problem and just getting, creating a crowd. Um, it, it, it's, uh, you know, it, it, these, uh, just having the model, uh, uh, handle all problems, isn't the solution to everything you do have to have some sending it on the right path of giving it a framework to work in, of, uh, of giving it the ingredients it needs to, uh, to, to solve a problem. And I, you know, th that's, I, I certainly don't see that part of it going away in the short term, maybe in the medium term, you know, eventually we'll, you'll have. LLMs that are expert users of, of Langchain and can, you know, code up, you know, uh, a prompt chains for you uh, uh, very easily. Um, but I, I think the the higher level goal then becomes how do you specify your task well to the model, right? How do you uh, make sure that that it uh, uh, understands what you need, right? Like in the same way that that a, a good um, consultant would or a good developer would, would, you know, like ask for, you know, requirements from a user. Um, I mean, maybe one day we'll get to that point, right? Of like, uh, that you'll actually just sit down and have a conversation with the model and like, it'll uh, be able to intelligently ask you for more input and like ask you to upload some design documents or whatever, ask you which competitors you like, uh, and then do the whole shebang for you. Um, but I think what we'll find is just that the the, the scope of what people ask for is pretty uh, unlimited, right? That, that if the, the model can produce simple programs, then people will just want less simple programs. Right. And then if the model can produce entire pieces of software just from a single prompt, they'll, they'll want things that are elaborate pieces of software. They'll want entire operating systems. They'll want, you know, uh, um, things that, that, that only teams of humans could produce. Uh, and I, I don't see that slowing down anytime soon, the demand for, you know, um, you know, ever more powerful software. I appreciate that perspective. It does make me think about when I hear that illusion of control argument people gave earlier to speak to one aspect of what you covered here. It, it does feel like I don't know that any prompt engineer would claim that they have full control over an LLM. And I think that the point that people are going to want more and more from these things is the right way to think about this. I do realize we're at hot time here. I wish we had longer because I have many, many more things that I'd love to ask you, Riley, but I just want to say thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. And it was really interesting to learn a little bit more about all this history and your perspectives. Yeah, I really appreciate you uh, uh, talking to me and uh, having me on the show. Yeah, thanks so much. And that is a wrap, my friends. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, you can subscribe to The Gradient on Substack to receive not just this podcast, but also our articles and newsletters directly to your email. You can also visit us at thegradient.pub, where you'll find all of that, as well as more information about The Gradient and how you could even contribute if you're interested. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate your feedback. 
If you'd like to leave a comment or review, we'd love to know how we can make this series more interesting and informative to you. And with all that, I'll leave you until the next episode.